0: Our reading today is from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is the word of God.
1: Janice, thank you very, very much uh, for reading that. And good morning. Uh, this is your very first time here. Perhaps you're one of a friend of Naveen, or maybe uh, you're a student just arrived after Freshers Week. Thank you so much for joining us today at CCB. Uh, my name's Andy, and the minister here. And uh, we've been journeying through this portion of Luke's Gospel. Um, understanding what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross. And along the way, he is teaching us, his disciples, the way. And this is a great passage for you. If you've got big questions about the Christian faith, but what it means to follow Jesus, well, this is a good place to begin. Although it's not an obvious passage to begin. Um, would you keep your uh, Bibles open? It's page 788, and i love it if you could follow along with me and make sure that what I'm saying is what Jesus has said here. And you might notice on the back of your service sheet, which you're given on the way in, there's a little outline. Some people like to doodle and, and make notes. If that's you, please, um, please do do that. Why don't I uh, pray? Let me ask God uh, for help. Father, Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Father, we've all got ears, but I pray, Father, you'd give us spiritual ears, that we would listen to what your spirit is saying through Jesus today. I pray, Father, you'll give us ears to hear what is difficult to hear and hearts that are willing to want to do what you say. Lord, only the Holy Spirit can change our hearts. We pray, Lord, for a powerful working of him this morning. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I came across an amazing story uh, this week, and I thought I had to share it with you. In the year 1845, two ships set sail from Southampton, HMS Terror and HMS Erebus. And uh, they, they left with great fanfare and great pomp and ceremony. Their mission was to find a safe passage through the Canadian Arctic through to the Pacific Ocean. And, and their captain, Sir John Franklin, he aimed to do this in style. Each ship, you can't quite tell for, from these images here, but each ship carried an auxiliary steam engine. And, uh, but Sir John Franklin, he, he didn't really want to use the engines so much. He wanted to rely on the winds. And so he said, "Ah, oh, we don't need that much coal. We we'll only need eight days of coal. And so they ditched the coal, which made a whole load of space in their ships for other things Things like a 1,200-book library in each ship and a pipe organ for playing merry tunes in each ship. Uh, they had china plates, crystal goblets, heavy silver cutlery with each one uh, monogrammed with the name of each officer on deck. Franklin took with him none of that sort of fancy-schmancy Arctic wear. Oh, no. They just carried their usual fancy uh, felt blue navy uniforms. It was supposed to be a two or three year round trip. But if you've seen the BBC drama, The Terror, you might know the ending. In fact, you might have guessed it already. None of Sir John Franklin's and his 130 officers, none of them were ever seen again. The ship got caught in ice and everyone either froze to death or starved to death or were eaten by polar bears. Decades later, and it was decades later, Eskimos, Inuits stumbled across the frozen bodies of Sir Franklin's men and were slightly surprised to see what they were wearing. These fancy-schmancy felt blue uniforms, some of them were still clutching this silver cutlery monogrammed with their names. Franklin's error was to confuse a dangerous expedition with a luxury cruise. Well, compare him with that of Sir Ernest Shackleton, who 70 years later, in 1914, set out on a different adventure. This time he was going to the Antarctic and he was trying to recruit sailors uh, for his expedition. And the story goes that he put this advert into the newspaper. Here's, here's what it said. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, Long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Honour and recognition in case of success, Saint Ernest Shackleton. And you know, he received 5,000 applicants for that expedition. I begin with that because if you were here in previous weeks, particularly last week, you'll remember hearing Jesus' invitation to follow him. It was a broad invitation to join him in the kingdom of God. It wasn't an invitation just for the moral and religious elites. It was an invitation much as just what we just sung in that last hymn. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. He says, come you who are spiritually unclean. Come you who are spiritually poor. Come, you who are spiritually powerless, come to me. You're welcome in my kingdom. You who have no means to enter by yourself, come. For everything is now ready. And if you look down in verse 25 in your Bibles, it seems like that generous invitation has not gone unnoticed. Now we're told large crowds are following Jesus to Jerusalem. And we can imagine in that crowd were people who are blind and lame and crippled and poor. People have nothing to offer Jesus and yet they're saying, I want to follow him. That broad invitation, heading along along the road. But as Jesus looks at this vast crowd following him, he wants them to be under no illusions. Like Sir Ernest Shackleton when he placed this advert, he wants to be really real with those who are following him. He doesn't want to sugarcoat the truth. He doesn't want to hide the difficulties in the small print somewhere. Clarity is loving. Clarity is kindness. Jesus says, following him is going to be incredibly costly. This is something Naveen today, particular, needs to listen. If you're new to Christian things, you really need to listen. If you're weighing up whether to follow Jesus, you really need to listen. All of us, whether you've been Christians for decades, you really need to listen. Following him is going to be incredibly costly. Now, don't get me wrong. We have been invited free of charge. Uh, we've not been invited because of anything we've done, because of anything we can pay or do. Free of charge. And yet, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to know what that's going to look like before you set off. So first thing you see on your handouts, the first thing Jesus teaches us is that following means forsaking. Look at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Wow. <laughs> I mean, what, you might be wondering, what on earth can Jesus mean by this? I mean, I mean, clearly he's not inviting us to break the fifth commandment, which we heard earlier on. Neither is he telling us to abandon our wives and our children, and leave them destitute. That wouldn't be loving, would it? He's not telling us to turn our love for them into hostility. Can't mean that. I think Jesus is, is employing a, a rhetorical device. When we're, faced, when we're faced with two competing priorities, he's telling us to hate one over the other, to, to choose one over the other. Uh, a few weeks ago, a number of us were at Jacob and Catherine's wedding and here they are, sat on the front row uh, and uh, wasn't it wasn't a wonderful occasion. So here they are up on the screen. You see uh, there Jacob with his best man, Matt, best buddies. And uh, you see there Catherine and her dad singing to one another, singing to the Lord, to one another. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? A wonderful, beautiful picture. But then they spoiled it all by making these vows. Uh, Jacob, will you take Catherine to be your wife? Will you love her, comfort, honor her, and protect her, and forsaking all others, honor her as long as you shall live. Forsaking all others. Now, what does that actually mean? Does it mean that Jacob must now no longer talk to Matt? He's forsaken. Does not mean that Catherine can no longer ever talk to her father? He is forsaken. Well, no, of course it doesn't mean that. What they meant in those vows is that they're going to give their love supremely to one another. They're going to give their loyalty and their allegiance and their affection ultimately to one another. Even over their friends. Even over their, their father. Well, that's kind of what Christ is talking about here. To love him supremely even above our families, even above our, our spouses, even above our children. We're invited here to, to make him, give our ultimate allegiance and loyalty to him. And perhaps some of us are still quite shocked by, by this command. I mean, but Jesus is just being honest, being honest about what we're to expect uh, and particularly in the first century, what, what his first followers were to expect. You see, in the first century, to follow Christ almost inevitably meant to be disowned by your family. It, it meant losing their love and their affection and their respect as you choose to follow this crucified Jewish Messiah. And for some here today, that will be your experience too, even here in the West. Simply because we've chosen to love Christ first. I, I think of my friend Henry. He began following Jesus when he was about 17 years old. Uh, wonderfully, he managed to share the good news with his mum, I think when he was about 21. She came to Christ too. But his dad said to her not so many years ago, he said, Henry, your Christianity has driven a wedge through my family. Deep, deep pain and, and division. Now, maybe we think that's a slightly extreme reaction from his, from his dad. I mean, what, why all this animosity simply about Jesus? I think that's because normally, normally in families, I don't know if you thought about this, but normally in families, th- th- there's a shared loyalty, isn't there? There's a shared love. There's a shared ethic, shared priorities. But, it, but if, our, if the Christian's first priority and loyalty is to Christ, so our first love is Christ, if our, if our ethics are defined by Christ, then for the unbelieving family member, that could be incredibly threatening and scary. I think there's also a challenge here for those of us who do have Christian families. Because I think it's very easy for us to still make them our first priority over Jesus. A bit like we heard last week, sometimes this is uh, seen when there's a clash in the diary. If, if family always wins... And Jesus always loses. Well, doesn't that reveal where our priorities are? And for those of us who are parents, we might tell our kids, Jesus is the king, Jesus is the king, ruler over everything, as we sing in the kids' song. But are we communicating that with the priorities that we set for them? Or are we teaching them, that, well, actually, in reality, academia matters more. <laughs> um, actually, sport matters more. There's a wonderful irony, though, isn't there? The wonderful irony is that as we put Jesus first, as we put his kingdom first, it makes us better spouses. It makes us better sons. It makes us better parents. It makes us more loving, more forgiving, more sacrificial. So here's the great irony. We love our families best by loving Christ Christ. Most, But following Jesus does mean forsaking your family. Next, Jesus says following him means forsaking your reputation. Look at verse 27. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, the, for the first hearers, hearing this, in the first century AD, only one sort of person carries their cross. And that was a criminal on their way to their own execution. Well, they literally had to carry the crossbeam of their cross. If you've ever thought about this, being crucified is an agonizing way to die. Agonizing, it often, it's where we get the word excruciating from. It was also an, a humiliating way to die. In Renaissance artwork, uh, the criminals and Jesus often play the loincloth, aren't they? But there's no loincloth. They were, they were crucified naked and being pecked at by birds until they couldn't breathe. It was a slow way to die. Because people often died of thirst, rather from the agony of their wounds. And as Jesus comes up, what's the best image to describe what following me is like? He goes, that. It's, it's this excruciating public humiliation. Now, those of you, if you, any of you work in marketing, you might hear this and you think, "Well, that was a bad pitch." You know, I, I'm, surely this is there's a better advert than this, Jesus. Uh, I mean, surely Jesus would get a bit more followers if he kind of kind of toned it down a bit, if he was less radical, <laughs> a little less extreme. Uh, but clarity is kindness. To follow Jesus means to follow Jesus. It means to walk in his footsteps on the road to the cross. So you can't be a Christian and expect to be popular. It will impact your reputation. It, it will impact your friendships. It will impact your career. Certainly that was true back in the first century. It's definitely true here today. Uh, let me tell you about a guy called Wayne Follett. Wayne was once a very highly regarded teacher in his school and in his profession. Uh, one day, he's a Christian, one day he heard one of his pupils was quite unwell. Uh, so he, he, uh, he, when he met his parents, uh, he offered, look, can I, can I, I'm a Christian, can I, can I pray for her? They, they politely declined, so he didn't. The next day, he was hauled into the head, master, head teacher's office to be to be told he is, uh, receiving an he had received a, an official complaint about religious bullying, and so he was sacked from his job. He's just a normal Christian guy offering to pray for someone. Now you might think that's a rather extreme case, but we're hearing more and more and more of this kind of thing. We really are. I don't think Wayne was being abrasive or abusive or weird in any way. He suffered simply because he was a Christian and open about it. For many of us, I imagine the worst we will experience will probably be everyday ridicule, a raised eyebrow in the office, people wondering, "Oh, you don't believe that, do you? And just the low-level mockery and shame. It won't be anything like what people faced in the first century, but I guess the question is, are you up for this? Naveen, are you up for this? You know, following Jesus means forsaking your reputation. It also means forsaking your possessions. If you just skip on to verse 33, Jesus uh, says this, verse 33, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Now, taken alone, out of context, that, that's a really hard teaching, is it? And, and we're all wondering, does Jesus literally mean everything? And I'm nervous here as a preacher. I, I, I want to caveat this, but I don't want to so caveat this. That, so the point dies the death of a thousand caveats. Um, to follow Jesus does mean to forsake your possessions. No getting around this. For some of us here, our wealth and our possessions are what is stopping us from following Jesus wholeheartedly. Um, we saw this last week, the excuses that stop us from going to the banquet, our field, our job. <laughs> they've become our, our priority. Uh, they've become our purpose. They've become our security. They've become our God. And, and if that's you, to you, Jesus says, if you don't give up everything, you can't. Be my disciple. As you read through Luke's gospel, there's a reason why the people who end up following him are the poor, are the weak, are the despised. And that's because by following him, they gain everything and lose nothing. They had no money to give up, they, they had no power to relinquish, uh, they, they had no reputation to maintain. Follow Jesus, yeah, or win. But for some of us here, or many of us here, we do have things to lose, don't we? So are we up for this? Now, of course, verse 33 isn't everything Jesus has to say about money and possessions. And, and throughout Luke and Acts, we meet many Christians who have houses and means. But they don't use those things as a reason to stay out of the kingdom. In fact, they use their money and their means to serve Jesus' kingdom. I had a wonderful example of this this week. I was at an event, and I didn't know this, but a friend of mine was, was giving his testimony there, uh, a friend of mine called Matthew. And um, he, he, um, he, he once had a stellar career in the city. Um, he, was, he helped to build John Lewis online, you know, sort of take John Lewis from just the shop to the online thing, and um, was massively successful in that. But he, while he was working at John Lewis, he, he describes his time there as he was a horrible person a really horrible person. He was horrible to the Christians there, mocked them mercilessly, thought they were weak and weird and pathetic. But over the years, Christians were praying for him, witnessing to him, and he came to know Jesus Christ. And uh, throughout this time uh, working for John Lewis, he lived in this really ugly semi-detached house in, in Rains Park. He hated living there, it was a really ugly house. And, and when he got picked up by Bowden, because they saw he'd done John Lewis, and they said, oh yeah, we want you to do this for Bowdoin. They, when, when they saw him, do, uh, when, they, when he drew that, they thought, brilliant, big bucks coming in. Now I can afford those nice houses in Wimbledon Hill. You know, the really nice wanky ones, uh, overseeing everything. And then now we want to go there. But his wife said to him, if you, want, if you aren't happy here, you won't be happy there you aren't happy in this house you won't be happy in that house either and she was absolutely right and decades later they're still living in that really ugly semi in rains park but have chosen to live and give generously to the purposes of jesus kingdom he now works for commission the network to which we're a part of and he's earning nothing like what he was earning at boden he said at this at the at the event I was at. He says, once you've got a church family, you realise there isn't really much more you need. Isn't that true, Naveen? You've got a wonderful church family. Uh, it's not much more you need. But Matthew learned that following means forsaking. So back to our our passage. Remember this vast crowd following Jesus along the way. You kind of imagine that some of the crowd has started sort of shrinking back a bit. You know, I've like, oh, all got something to do. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are walking away from Jesus like, oh yeah, not quite sure I'm up for this. And, and maybe that's what you're thinking. As we lay it out, so you think, well, oh, I'm not really sure I'm up for this. I, we don't really want to think about this, do we? But Jesus says, you've got to think about this. Because following Jesus thoughtlessly is disastrous. And so he tells two parables, two stories. Uh, let's look at the first one. Verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you've got enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, the person began to build and wasn't able to finish. <laughs> now, does anyone recognize this partially... Uh, completed monument behind me. Does anyone recognise this? Hands up if you recognise it. Shout out, anyone? It's the Eiffel Tower. No, it's not the Eiffel Tower, Josh Campbell. Unlucky. Um, it is, in fact, the Watkins Tower. You see, this was actually built a few years after the Eiffel Tower. If we go to the next slide, you, you'll see uh, the French built the Eiffel Tower and the whole world were mesmerised by it. Wow, aren't the French brilliant? Aren't they great? The French, yeah. And we Brits didn't like that at all. So we said, no, we want to build the Watkins Tower, which is 45 meters taller. We wanted to show our national superiority over the French. And I see Alan smiling on the back row. <laughs> and so we started work on the Watkins Tower, yeah, French, but then we ran out of cash and construction stopped and Watkins Tower stopped at a pathetic 30 meters tall, much to the hilarity of Paris. It became known as, uh, as Watkins Folly and that we became a laughing stock. So what do we do? We knock down Watkins Town. We built Wembley, Wembley Stadium, where we beat the French in a different way. <laughs> but the point of Jesus story here, it's simple, isn't it? If you don't count the cost before you start building, if you don't count the cost before you start following, you're going to end up looking like a total idiot. He tells a very similar parable, verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other's still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Um, no, I really enjoyed the Game of Thrones books, and I'm aware that the TV show has mixed reviews amongst Christians in particular. But in the books, there's a brilliant illustration of Jesus' parable here. And um, Stannis Baratheon, he's the rightful king over Westeros. And he's about to attack the stronghold of House Bolton, this really wicked and evil guy. And, and as we're introduced to the battle, uh, we see Stannis' army advance, there they are, well-trained, they're disciplined, they're determined. But then the camera zooms out, and we see that Stannis' men are utterly surrounded and outnumbered by the Bolton troops. They're ridiculously outnumbered, and all of Stannis's men, to a man, are slaughtered. All because they're king, so convinced of his rightness. Didn't consider to count the cost. The point of Jesus' story, again, is simple. If you don't count the cost before you start following him, it will end in disaster. And this, friends, is why here at CCB we don't preach a watered-down, lightweight, diet Christianity. We preach what Jesus taught including the difficult bits because when churches do that, the watered down diet Christianity, therapeutic Christianity, it sets up this expectation amongst us that, Hey, following Jesus is just going to be easy all the time. It's going to be great all the time, which is nonsense. And Naveen in years to come, you're going to discover that actually becoming a Christian, it makes your life harder in many respects. And so if you set out thinking it's going to be really easy, you're just going to stop when it gets hard. And tragically, many people do that in other churches. I wonder how many of us have suffered the pain of seeing a friend or a family member start following Jesus under those, under, under those ideas, but then they, they quickly fall away. Perhaps they, they once claimed to follow Christ, expecting things to be really easy, but then they, then they give up. Maybe they're, they're faced with a difficult moral or ethical decision and they go for the easy route. Often in my experience, it's when there's a romantic interest. He's not a Christian and they choose him over Christ. And now they're nowhere spiritually. I can think of so many friends, family who've done this because they didn't weigh the cost. This is huge implications for those who are trying to raise children in the faith. Um, we need to help them now when they're little, think about this stuff before they get older. Because it's only going to get harder for them in this country to follow Jesus. And, and like it or not, here's the thing. Our kids are going to learn Christianity, not from B, or Children's Worker, <laughs> but, but from us. Uh, from, from you, the, the parents. If they see their parents putting Christ's kingdom first, uh, if they see their parents making costly decisions for the good of the gospel, they're going to pick up that that is what it means to follow Jesus. But if they see you making compromises, they will learn compromise. If they see you keep your Christianity secret, they will learn to keep their Christianity secret. And they won't stand up for Jesus when they're at secondary school. Following Jesus thoughtlessly is disastrous. And very briefly, following Jesus nominally in name only is worthless. Verse 34. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear." I like salt. Salt's got one job, hasn't it? Be salty. I, I like salt on my chips. I, I like uh, salt on my driveway to stop my car slidding. I, I, I park on a hill, disaster. I like salt for that. I like uh, salt to kill the slugs, which have somehow invaded our living room. Who knows? Um, <laughs> Don't pity us. It's probably our fault. We left food on the floor. Um, but um, salt's great, isn't it? But uh, salt that isn't salty, worthless. In the same way, followers of Jesus have one job. To follow Jesus. <laughs> what use is a follower of Jesus who doesn't follow Jesus? Who isn't lovingly invested in their church family? Who isn't a distinctive witness in their workplace. Who isn't raising their children to know the Lord. Who isn't giving themselves generosity in all the ways that, that they can. A follower of Jesus who doesn't follow Jesus isn't a follower of Jesus. Maybe when you read this passage the first time, as Janice read it out, maybe you thought, oh, okay, what Jesus is doing here, he's kind of laying down like the elite package. Okay, if you want to be a really keen Christian, like a vicar or something like that, this is kind of the standard. For the rest of us, Joe Schmoes, we've got a kind of a different lightweight package, a bit like Netflix. You've got the HD option, and then you've got the lightweight option, which is in like lower definition, but you've still got Netflix, right? Um, I, I think sometimes we think like that. It's not what's going on here. There's only one package. Uh, verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me. Verse 27, and anyone who does not carry his cross. Verse 33, and any of you who does not give up everything. I can't labour this enough. If you have ears to hear this, will you hear it? Being a nominal Sunday Christian is worthless. Why bother? Just be a wholehearted pagan. Now, if you're here today and you're really new to Christian things, maybe you're invited along by Naveen or another Christian friend. They're thinking, why did I invite them today? Ah, <laughs> oh, why didn't I invite them last week? <laughs> last week was all good news, gospel, invitation. Come on in, everyone, sinners, come and join us. This week is, oh, this is, I mean, where's the good news in this passage, right? Jesus has somehow managed to make the Christian life look utterly miserable. Um, Naveen, if your friends probably already think you're mental, but now they think you're more mental. What, what, why have they chosen this passage for today? But I, I want to close with just two little bits of good news. Two reasons why you should still choose to follow Jesus, even though, yeah, it will be costly. And the first is that Jesus only wants failures. Maybe in sitting the last twenty minutes thinking, oh, 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 oh not doing that, oh failing at that, oh my priorities are all over the shop. What do my kids think of me? Oh if you're feeling like a failure, great. Because I I, I I think that's the kind of the point here. If you're feeling more and more weak, more and more helpless, more and more undeserving, well, I think that's partly Jesus' design. He wants those following him along the roads. To be depending on him. All the way. And in the next chapter. In fact, Naveen mentioned it in his, in his testimony, didn't he? In the next chapter, which we're going to return to after half term. We see how God deliberately goes out. N- not to find the elites. Not to find the people on the HD Netflix package. Jesus goes out to find failures. Jesus goes out to find people who made bad decisions, who made a mess of their lives, who have ruined their priorities, who have shameful pasts. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and he invites them to come into his heavenly banquet. Whilst the proud religious types, they remain on the outside. Jesus only wants failures. Isn't that good news? So come back when we preach Luke 15. The second little piece of good news is that Jesus forsook everything for failures. And we've got to get this. You see, Jesus asks nothing of us that he has not already done himself. I mean, just look at your service sheet again. You see those sort of points. Jesus does them all. Uh, he's the creator. He, he possessed the whole world. The entire riches of creation were his. And yet, what did he do? He, he willingly entered our world and forsook it all. He, he was born in abject poverty. His first bed, a king-sized bed, was an animal feeding trough. And then in, in his adult life, he, he was homeless for most of it, wandering along the road. Jesus forsook his home and his possessions so that you might have a home with him. He is the eternal Lord of glory, the one who is entrusted with all power and all authority, and yet he willingly gave it all up. He forsook it all. All that power, all that reputation, he gave it up as he walked to the cross, carrying the crossbeam, suffering in agony for you. You so that you might be welcomed into God's honored embrace he is the son of god always in perfect relationship with his father yet upon the cross in his human nature he was forsaken by his father he was cut off from his father so that you might be embraced by him so that the lost might be found that is the King we follow. He asks nothing of us that He has not already done Himself. He invites you to follow Him. And so back to Naveen's baptism. Johnny told us earlier in the kids' lot, didn't he? Baptism means going down with Christ into death, following Him into death, but also means following Him into new resurrection life. Following Jesus means following Jesus. Yes, it is costly, yes, it is painful. But friends, we have life. We have a small glimpse and taste of that life now. But we have eternal life to come. And that is why, friends, it is worth following Jesus. Because this life is very short. Eternity is very long. So weigh the cost. Can I pray? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the kindness of Jesus. We thank you for his clarity and his honesty with us. Thank you he doesn't hide the difficulties or the small print. I pray, Father, that even today there might be someone who, seeing what Christ forsook for them, would willingly take up their cross and follow him. And Father, as we as a church witness Naveen's baptism now, as we see his death and his resurrection in Christ, I pray, Lord, that we'll be strengthened to live that resurrected life now and leave behind the world, leave behind our wealth, leave behind all that hinders us and live wholeheartedly for Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.